On the surface, this is the story of an oil pipeline that seemed inevitable. My heart actually dropped. I was just like, this is going to be built. And the grassroots group of Memphians that rose to fight it. We are David in this Goliath fight. Deeper down, it's the story of an ancient aquifer, the source of Memphis's sweet water buried hundreds of feet below the city's streets, hidden under parks, landfills, and coal ash ponds. Oh my God, you have never had water. And when you drink it, it's like it's been in a refrigerator for days. You don't know how good it is until you go somewhere else. But this is also the story of Southwest Memphis, and a place called Boxtown in particular, a community founded by formerly enslaved people who put down deep roots, lived off the land, and took good care of one another through decades of government neglect. People just so content. They don't mess with nobody, nobody mess with them. Yeah. And it's the story of a fertile bend in the Mississippi, transformed into an industrial cradle with fish now too toxic to eat and air that, depending on the day, makes residents turn right back around and go inside. All of that smokestacks is in this neighborhood? Nobody don't care about that. If it's affecting the old black people in this neighborhood, who care? And ultimately, it's the story of the fight for environmental justice that now drives a new generation of activists and their allies. Dr. King said this, the movement lives or dies in Memphis. This is Broken Ground, a podcast from the Southern Environmental Law Center. Here at Broken Ground, we dig up environmental stories in the South and introduce you to the people at the heart of them. I'm Leanna Furstarai, an environmental journalist and your new host. This season, we're focusing on a single story, the fight against the Bihalia Connection crude oil pipeline in Memphis, Tennessee. I've been reporting on environmental justice issues for a few years now, I'm also a teacher, and I covered the early part of the pipeline controversy in 2020 when I was living in Memphis. Nestled along the banks of the Mississippi, on the western edge of the state, Memphis's identity has been shaped by the river. Long before the coming of the railroads, the Mississippi River was the main artery of travel. And it has always drawn fishermen like Warren Johnson. This river, this river gonna talk to you. It's got his own way of speaking to you. And when it talk, it's it a step. You better respect it. It's a good neighbor to have. But when you think of this city today, I'll bet you think of a few other things, like Memphis barbecue. You know, pulled pork or ribs with that tangy sweet dry rub that's made it famous. Any promotional travel video will tell you. Visit Memphis and be part of one of the greatest debates of all time. Who's got the best barbecue in Memphis? Of course, if you're a basketball fan, maybe you think of the Memphis Grizzlies. And whether or not you've ever heard of Beale Street, music must come to mind. It's a long way from W.C. Handy to Elvis Presley, but the Memphis sound is big enough for all. She's Depending on how old you are and what you grew up turning up on the radio, you might think of Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, Three Six Mafia, Elvis Presley, or Young Dolph. So much of what we consider American culture has roots in Memphis. 
One truth behind this blues sound and what grew out of it is that there is a lot of trauma here. Individual trauma, collective trauma, environmental trauma, racial trauma. Dr. Martin Luther King's massive downtown march on Memphis is now underway. Several thousand Negroes... The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came here in 1968 in solidarity with the Memphis sanitation workers. They were striking for better working conditions after two black men were crushed to death on the job. Many of the demonstrators are carrying the sign, I am a man. They stretch out for And it was here in Memphis during that strike when Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel. I mention all this because the sanitation workers' strike is often cited by scholars and activists as the origin of the environmental justice movement in the U.S. That's because it drew national attention to how Black people often live and work around the most polluted and dangerous places. In this season of Broken Ground, we're going to get you up to speed on how Memphians continue to fight environmental racism half a century after the movement began here. We'll be following resistance to the Bihalia Connection oil pipeline, which, for good reason, former Vice President Al Gore would eventually call a reckless, racist ripoff. It was so blatant, the route of the pipeline was going directly through an African-American community, one that is 97% African-American. That's attorney Chandra Taylor-Sawyer, head of the Southern Environmental Law Center's Environmental Justice Initiative. It was a decision like, these are people who don't have a lot of political power, so we're going to just try to run over them. That happens so much. It is like the backbone of where we see environmental injustice. Chandra and her colleagues at SELC eventually become deeply involved in the Bihalia pipeline fight. But first things first. Let's back up to December of 2019, when two companies, Plains All-American and Valero Energy Corporation, first announced that they would be building the Bihalia Connection Pipeline. The Bihalia Connection Pipeline would run from Memphis to Marshall County. I was living and reporting in Memphis at the time, so I covered the early part of the story for two local nonprofit newspapers, Southerly and MLK 50. If you're a regular follower of climate news, you probably know that oil and gas pipelines have become a rallying point for environmentalists and climate advocates, a sort of physical manifestation of climate denial and corporate greed. Protests against pipelines are a place where civil rights, human rights, and the climate crisis converge. Water is life! Water is life! And pipeline fights aren't easy or quick. It took six solid years of activism and legal action to defeat the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. A stunning announcement from one of the country's largest utility companies, Duke Energy of Charlotte and Virginia-based Dominion Energy, announced they are canceling the controversial Atlantic Coast Pipeline. That pipeline would have cut through North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia, impacting Black and Native American communities, among others. You can learn about that fight in the first season of Broken Ground. Other pipeline fights have been so contentious, the police have responded with violence. Security has some kind of gas. People are being pepper sprayed. So I was on high alert when I first caught word of a new high-pressure crude oil pipeline proposed to run through southwest Memphis. It's a first-up, close look, I should say, at a controversial plan to build a 45-mile underground oil pipeline between Memphis and Marshall County, Mississippi. 
Here's an early story from the local ABC News affiliate. Supporters say the proposed route will have a limited impact through neighborhoods, but first there will be several community meetings over the next two months in those impacted neighborhoods. So on a Saturday morning in January 2020, I drove out to one of those community meetings just over state lines in South Haven, Mississippi. I should explain here that Memphis is tucked so deep in the far southwest corner of Tennessee that you can cross a street and be in Mississippi or cross a bridge and be in Arkansas. Hey, would you be able to explain just kind of the, the layout of the connection? I just don't know how far on this map because I'm not sure of the scale. Um. Pipeline representatives, like the one we just heard from, had all flown in from Texas. They handed out glossy brochures touting pipeline safety. There were cheese and cracker plates, cookie plates, fruit plates, you name it. They also had products on display like disposable diapers, leggings, and household cleaning supplies as examples of the everyday stuff, quote-unquote, made possible by oil. I remember how much that bothered me, because in a room full of folks who may have legitimate concerns about crude oil whooshing under their garden beds and around the edge of their children's swing sets, focusing on our collective need for consumer products felt like pure gaslighting. Some people who showed up that day, the majority of whom were white, wanted to know exactly how close that pipeline would be to their family land. A couple had concerns about the city's drinking water, but to be honest, I was sort of surprised by how low-key it all felt. And the way the pipeline reps talked about it, it was like it was happening no matter what. Listen to this guy. The project is imminent. We are going to construct If the project was indeed imminent, and no one was really bothered by it, then I figured maybe there wasn't actually much of a story here. Until I found myself at another meeting, this time in a packed chapel on a hill, in a neighborhood called Boxtown. This neighborhood always get the blunt of whatever the other neighborhoods in the city don't want. This is Boxtown resident, Miss Moselle Smith. No one comes to the community and asks, how do we feel about a pipeline coming through our neighborhood? Everybody would say, no, we don't want this. As I stood there listening to Miss Moselle and her neighbors in White's Chapel Church, it was clear that the pipeline had really touched a nerve in this neighborhood. But I wouldn't fully understand why until I got to know a man named Samuel Hardaway. The way I look at it, I love it. I love this area. Mr. Hardaway was born and raised in Boxtown. Let's take a tour and I'll take you guys around. And- okay. He's 71, tall, thin, and soft-spoken. A real gentle giant. Excuse me if I'm driving fast. Though I have to admit, he has a bit of a lead foot. I mean, it's just my nature. I always love fast cars. <laughs> Mr. Hardaway worked for the railroad for 35 years, and he's one of the folks I featured in my first article about the Bihelia Connection Pipeline. He first caught my attention at that White's Chapel meeting, where he was pretty upset. And I laugh about it sometimes because I say, well, uh, all the people there, why should you come up to me? (laughs) Well, you asked so many good questions, basically none of which were answered in that moment. And I could tell, you know, there started to be a little bit of steam coming out of your ears. It it was. was, I'll be honest with you, it was. And that's why I, I said, well, and I'm, I'm not going to leave this. I'm going to get more and more deep involved. Yeah. And I was just like a foot soldier. I was putting up signs, talking to people and everything. Mm-hmm. 
The community Mr. Hardaway was so eager to protect is one of Memphis's longest standing black neighborhoods. It's got one of the city's oldest black churches, that's White's Chapel, and it's also home to T.O. Fuller State Park, the very first state park open to black people east of the Mississippi. This is very interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of history here. This is a community founded by formerly enslaved people who settled where they could under Jim Crow segregation, in this case, right up along the railroad tracks, which actually helps explain how Boxtown got its name. It started with the boxcars, and the people started building homes. Some early residents actually repurposed abandoned boxcars as houses. Others salvaged the wood and used it to build homes from scratch. And that was back when the slaves were free, back in the 1800s. So this place has been around a long time. In part, that has to do with just how rich the land in this area is. Boxtown sits on a high, flat hill overlooking a bend in the Mississippi River at the far southwest edge of Memphis. They call it the Chickasaw Bluff. For millennia, the gentle curves in the river carved out bluffs like this, creating a unique habitat ripe for life. High above the Mississippi, the area had everything. Temperate climate, fertile soil, and water close but not too close. Before Boxtown was founded, indigenous peoples like the Chickasaw, Cherokee, and Choctaw lived here on and off for nearly a thousand years. In fact, Teo Fuller State Park is home to the Chukalissa Indian Village historic site. If you look, you can see still a lot of old trails that the Indians walk. Mr. Hardaway and his 11 siblings walked those trails themselves as children. Back then, Boxtown had dirt roads and outhouses. There weren't any streetlights or even city buses servicing the area. Technically, it wasn't even a part of Memphis yet. So there's a deeply outdoor nature to Mr. Hardaway's childhood memories. He spent a lot of time exploring this land, this forest, this bluff. We used to play a game, find the tallest tree and who could climb to the top. I climbed so high one time, I saw the Memphis, Arkansas Bridge, and I didn't do it no more. <laughs> but the land around Boxtown wasn't just a playground. It provided real sustenance. People grew fruits and vegetables, kept hogs, and tapped the earth for fresh water. Anything that, that you can buy in the store today, we grew it. If we didn't grow it, the neighbors grew it. Or someone down the street grew it. The gardens Mr. Hardaway is talking about were common in Boxtown and nearby neighborhoods. Almost every resident we spoke with mentioned one. And nobody came up short during the wintertime. It was a whole lot of sharing. One of the places Mr. Hardaway made sure to take us on his tour of Boxtown was his family home. This is my home house that was built back in the 50s. But it's been remodeled since. The home house is a tidy, cream-colored, one-story cottage. It sits on two acres, with woods behind. There's a screened-in gazebo here, perfect for gathering. One thing beautiful about this, uh, we're not going to let it go anywhere, because we're the second generation, third generation, it's going to be left up to them to take care of everything. That's one unique thing about Boxtown. Homeownership rates are really high here. While around 75% of white households in the U.S. own the home they live in, 
Racist housing policies and redlining have limited black homeownership nationally to a much lower number, about 44%. But here in Boxtown, over 60% of residents own their own homes, even though half of the residents earn less than $25,000 a year. People are just so content. They don't mess with nobody, nobody mess with them. Yeah. Of course, Mr. Hardaway is just one man with fond memories of growing up in Boxtown. We wanted to know how other folks felt, too. So, ever the gracious host, Mr. Hardaway helped gather a group of other longtime Boxtown residents to speak with us. Miss Brenda O'Dell was one of about a dozen folks who met us in a boomy community room at the state park. My brother said to me, I don't remember going to the grocery store as a child except to buy meal, flour, and sugar. And he said, we grew everything. And then he said, but sister, we were poor. And I said, we were? Yeah, we didn't realize. <laughs> Residents at this impromptu meetup came up during the height of the civil rights movement and during a period when Memphis city limits seemed to be expanding in every direction except to incorporate Boxtown. In fact, in 1960, the Memphis Housing Authority director advised against annexing Boxtown, describing it as, quote, haphazardly developed to the point where no one would want to go in and invest a dime. Daniel Lewis was just a kid back then. And my first awareness of politics was noticing when I was a, probably less than 10 years old. About every two years, you could count on the potholes being filled uh-huh. in and maybe a little bit more gravel put down. Despite the occasional acknowledgement during election season, residents say Boxhun was largely left to develop on its own, at least for a while. And we actually live a real sheltered life down here. Here's Miss Marcella Shepard, former president of the Boxtown Neighborhood Association. Because we had our stores, we had a service station, mechanic shop, so we had everything we needed down here. So we were really sheltered and protected from a lot of elements from the outside world. Memphis finally annexed Boxtown in 1971, promising to bring city services like trash pickup and infrastructure upgrades. But then, for an entire decade, Memphis did virtually nothing to fulfill that promise. Residents had to organize and threatened to sue the city of Memphis for neglect. Not just once, but twice. We suffered taxation without representation. That was a big problem. That's where all the lawsuits came in at. We didn't have uh, roads, we didn't have sewers, we didn't have street lights, but the tax bills certainly found their way to our houses. The man you just heard is Lenois White. The White family is arguably one of Boxtown's oldest. And White's Chapel, where that earlier pipeline meeting took place, that's his family. So we've been in this community probably more than 200 years. This is where I'm going to be. I'm, I'm probably about... 250 steps from the cemetery. (laughs) So when my time is no longer on this earth, they won't have very far to take me to my final resting place. And I know that'll be right around the corner from where my house is right now on on Boxtown Road. After our meeting, we caught up with Lenoise at his home, just a short walk from the family cemetery. I got three brothers back there, mom and dad. Aunts and uncles that used to live all, all all this area here that was populated all around here. All those people are back there now resting. Lenoise's home is a five-bedroom brick house that he built here on family land 20-some years ago. It was 350 steps from my back door to my mom's front door. 
And so I love that. You know, I could, you know, it was, it was just the easy thing to run up there and check on her. His mom has since passed away, but his daughter now lives two doors over and his cousin lives between them. When Lenoise first heard about plans to have the Bihalia pipeline cut through Boxtown, about a mile and a half from his home, he says he wasn't actually all that concerned for himself. You know, personally, I thought being here was going to keep me safe, but, you know, it's not necessarily about me. Like Dr. King said, we are all inextricably tied together. You know, so what affects you down the road eventually will affect me. You know, so. Lenoise White has dreams for his neighborhood, and none of them involve a pipeline. I one day see Boxtown as a renaissance that'll feature houses like this and kids again running up and down the neighborhood and, and having fun and, you know, land ownership, home ownership. That's what I like to see for it, you know, um, just just a quiet community where, you know, just the, it'll be like Germantown West. Germantown, for context, is a wealthy white suburb east of Memphis. Ironically, it's actually where the pipeline would have bulldozed through had the planners decided to draw a straight line. But the reason we're here is they didn't. Instead, they decided to shoot south through the predominantly black neighborhoods of Walker Homes, West Junction, Boxtown, and Westwood, before taking a hard 90-degree turn to reach the pipeline's final destination in Mississippi. And Rashawn Austin was not surprised. We made a whole bunch of bad decisions as cities in the U.S. What growth should look like. Rashawn is head of a community development organization in South Memphis and an urban anthropologist by training. For them, they're used to, just like all other companies in the U.S., taking interstates and pipelines and chemical plants through neighborhoods where you have the most vulnerable people. Sometimes the people were already selling there, and the industry said, you know, it's just Black people. We can build the interstate and our plants and convince them that this is a good thing. And then sometimes the industry was there and it was the land that was available to Blacks. If we're going to understand the undue burden a crude oil pipeline would place on Boxtown, we need to know what exists here already and at what cost. And there's one thing I haven't mentioned to you yet about Boxtown's location. It's proximity to heavy industry. As an outsider, I can say that the density of polluting facilities in these few square miles certainly stands out. I'm trying to go back here, give y'all a better view. Wow, this is quite the spot. This is kind of like a canyon almost. Yeah. Back on the bluff with Mr. Hardaway, we look west towards the Mississippi River. Down at the bottom of the bluff below us, there are train tracks, and between those and the river lies a swath of lowland sprinkled with factories and agricultural fields. In some ways, it feels counterintuitive. Like in an alternate reality, you might see wading birds diving for fish here. But as along so much of the Mississippi, instead, you see industrial facilities. Mr. Hardaway recalls the slow creep of heavy industry here. Businesses drawn by the proximity to the river. Steam plant was the only plant down here. It was just down here by itself for a long time, burning coal. The three red and white smokestacks of the Tennessee Valley Authority's coal-fired steam plant were the first Mr. Hardaway remembers poking through the treetop skyline. The plant came online in 1959 and came to power the entire region. 
If you lived in Western Tennessee before 2018, it's likely that a significant portion of your power came from this plant. And whether you knew it or not, Boxtown's air was your dumping ground. All three of those stacks had smoke coming out of it. You know, it was dark, it was dark black smoke, just like you burned coal. Back then, you really didn't think that much about it at all. You, you know, it was just down here by itself on the river. TVA retired its coal-powered plant four years ago and replaced it with one powered by so-called natural gas, which is really made up of polluting methane. That's now down the street, a stone's throw from the original coal plant. Then you got Nucor down there. That's the Nucor steel plant. You got two or three more industrials down there. An appliance manufacturer, a composting facility, a trucking center. Also down there, they have uh, the Memphis Chevy County sewage treatment plant. And it's pretty good side. That's probably what you were smelling. With all of that industry wedged between Boxtown's Bluff and the river, there's a distinctive, metallic-y, industrial smell that hits your nose sometimes. It's hard to describe because it's not always the same. It's something about how the wind be blowing, you know. Yeah. Even for President Island, you get older from President Island. Mr. Hardaway is referring to what used to be the largest island in the Mississippi River, which was converted to a 1,200-acre industrial park in the mid-20th century. It's just north of Boxtown. President's Island is home to even more industry, from pesticide producers and chemical companies to corn millers and cement manufacturers. All pretty smelly stuff. And there's yet another polluting facility nearby that Mr. Hardaway took us to see. Now, as you can see, this is Valero right here. That's a thick smoke coming out of that one yep. stack right there. All of this is Valero. This is where the Bahia pipeline, this is where it's going to be connected and, and run through the pipeline to wherever they was going with it. If there's one industrial facility that came up the most from residents during our interviews, it was the Valero Oil Refinery. It's been here since 1941. Though its ownership has changed over the years, according to Miss Scotty Fitzgerald, its smell has always been distinct. You could smell it, smell like old rotten eggs in our whole neighborhood. You could smell it. You knew when you were getting close to us. Miss Scotty grew up in the adjacent neighborhood of Walker Homes, just east of Boxtown and directly south of the refinery. People would uh, make jokes when they came down from Milwaukee to visit us or Chicago, and they would come in. Well, we knew we were getting close to you. We smelled the eggs. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's not. And all those people that stayed on that row that you could just directly look over, most of them are left with cancer. She's referring to the residential street closest to the refinery. When Helen died, uh, one of my schoolmates, when she died, that was the first for hearing somebody so young with cancer. That was in high school. But then a neighbor was diagnosed, and then another neighbor, then another. It, it hit me when we got older. So many women developing breast cancer. Eventually, the miasma found its way into Miss Scotty's home. Her mother had a mastectomy, and Scotty herself survived both breast cancer and ovarian cancer. 
Researchers are cautious about tying individual cancer cases like Miss Scotty's to specific polluting facilities. But here's what we can say. Studies show that people living near heavy industry have a greater risk of illness. When it comes to Southwest Memphis, cancer rates are four times higher than the national average, and the life expectancy is significantly lower. The US, the average life expectancy is about 78.8 years old, right? This community actually is 10 years less. It's only 68. This is Dr. Chenrong Jia, an associate professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Memphis. My research area is in air pollution and the associated health effects. We met Dr. Jia in Riverview Park, just north of Boxtown and about a mile from the Valero oil refinery. There's an air pollution monitor here that he's used for his research, and we wanted to see it. This is the monitor. Honestly, it's not much to look at. Sort of a mini version of a corner mailbox, but all gray. It sits behind a chain link fence at the top of a hill between an elementary and middle school. Dr. Jaw has crunched the data from monitoring stations like this, and he's brought along a series of maps to show us what he's found. One map shows the location of polluting facilities like Valero, Another shows income levels, and a third shows cancer rates. The combined results for the neighborhood we're standing in are jaw-dropping. All these health indicators almost the worst percentiles in the country and in the state. On his chart, he uses Germantown as a control. It's that wealthier, whiter Memphis community a half hour east of here that Lenoise White mentioned. There, the national cancer risk percentile is low, only 8%. Compare that to the cancer risk here in Riverview. The percentile is 91 percentile. That means it's on the top 10% cancer risk. In other words, people in this community, including the children attending the schools right here near the air monitor, their risk of getting cancer is higher than it is for people living in the vast majority of the United States. Dr. Jaw's air pollution study wrapped up in mid-2019, so the air monitor he showed us is no longer collecting any data at this point. And while the county has dozens of working air monitors across Memphis, and EPA has one out in the suburbs, not a single active air monitor is to be found here in southwest Memphis. Dr. Jaw says he was drawn to work in this area because of the high concentration of industry here. He wondered how this happens and how this would impact health or cause injustice. But of course, Dr. Jaw is still a scientist and is careful about distinguishing correlation from causation. We can only say, I mean, it's a disadvantaged community and they have multiple stressors. And if you add another additional environmental burden, you can imagine their health outcomes would become even worse. And that brings us back to the Bihalia pipeline, which would begin just down the street at Valero and pass through Boxtown. In a community that already faces significant environmental burdens, that has had to fight for city recognition, for streetlights, for plumbing, for bus service, the pipeline is yet one more indignity, one more potential threat. I read about, you know, oil spills and this and that. And I mean, all that is just like, wow. 
if you mess up this, you just have messed up everything. I mean, the land, the water, nature-wise, if you destroy something, you can't put it back. There's no way. It'll be there from now on. Nothing. Man, all it is just a waste. It's that thought of what would be lost that drove Mr. Hardaway and some of the other folks we met in Boxtown to fight the pipeline, to push for answers, to rally their neighbors, to press their elected officials to do something, to do anything. A lot of people kind of dismiss what they're going to do what they want to do. I said, well, I'm not, hey, I'm going down and fight. The only problem was nearly a year into the fight and in the middle of a pandemic, the pipeline was still coming, but... Soon as things seemed like it was going, by here, pipeline, direction, the young people stepped up. They started coming from everywhere, raising a lot of noise and everything. And people started listening, you know. It really got rolling beautiful then. Join us next time on Broken Ground, when a group of younger activists mobilizes to join the fight. I don't care if I live in Russia. If it comes to Southwest Memphis, I'm fighting for it. We have to fight now. You have to fight. You have to fight now. It was time for the younger generation to take the torch and kind of carry it. Broken Ground is a podcast by the Southern Environmental Law Center one of the nation's most powerful defenders of the environment rooted in the South. Broken Ground is produced by Emily Richardson Lorente, Priya Mahadevan, Liana First Arai, and Jenny Daly, with assistance from Eli Modica and Co. Bragg. Special thanks to our founding host and former executive producer, Claudine Abade McElwain. Our theme music is by Eric Knutson. For more information, please visit brokengroundpodcast.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.